Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can go to John 11, be in verses 45 to 57. Well, I'll be reading the passage as we go. Um, so I want to start by just considering some symbols. Now, we all know there are plenty of famous symbols that we see every day. When we drive, when we're watching the TV, wherever, we see these famous symbols. And usually with that symbol, you not only recognize like, who it represents, but maybe some thoughts and ideas and connotations come to mind. So play with me. We'll uh, have a little game here. Hopefully you know what these symbols are. First one is the Air Jordan Jumpman logo. Now, greatest basketball player of all time. Not many people have their own logo, but Jordan does. One thing that comes to mind for me really quickly is in middle school, I went through this phase where his, he had a cologne that came out. So right before Curve was really cool, anyone my age, um, the Michael Jordan cologne, I went through a couple years where that was my thing. So the Air Jordan. Next one is Apple logo. I mean, very recognizable. As soon as we see it, we know what it is. We know how the iPhone and iPads have really changed the way we do life um, here in the West. Another one is Starbucks. You know, when I see that, for me, I think of those long drives on the road when you're starting to feel very tired and exhausted, and you see that green beacon of hope, that caffeine is on the way, and you will endure. That's what I think of when I think of Starbucks. Then there's also this one, Chick-fil-A. Yes, we love Chick-fil-A. And you see that image, maybe you think of the, those nice workers who say, it's my pleasure to serve you, great customer service. Or maybe you think of biting into that juicy, delicious chicken or the waffle fries. Do not underestimate the waffle fries. That's Chick-fil-A, that's what we think of. Well, then there's also the cross. Yes, you had to get Christian here. There's the cross. And the cross is actually the most famous symbol of all time. Nothing has reached so many countries across the globe over the timeline of history. No other symbol shows up in so many different circumstances and among all groups of people. And the cross, it's not just a logo. It's not a marketing device. It's even different from other religious icons because it points back to a historical reality, something that happened in history and a life-changing reality. You know, we see crosses on necklaces, you might have them on your arm as a tattoo, you might have it on your house or on the wall. We see them at churches, and if anyone is wondering, yes, we'll have a cross at the church, so you can be at peace now. The cross also shows up at funerals or in cemeteries, and we see crosses on the side of the road. And all of those signal that there is hope for eternal life, there's salvation, and that there's even victory and loss through the cross. In his book, Long Journey Home, Oz Guinness writes about one Christian village along the African coast that was pillaged. What happened was the survivors, they broke small little sticks into wooden crosses and they stuck those in the sand. Now for them, the cross was a signal of hope. It was a reminder of what Jesus had endured and how Jesus had suffered like them and knew what they were going through. Those little crosses were to them a symbol that all suffering will be redeemed by God and that God can and does triumph through the worst of evil. But what's unique about the cross and not the symbol but the reality behind the symbol is that it not only signifies something or points to something else, but the cross actually shapes us. 
You know, I might use my Apple computer. I might love Chick-fil-A. But those things don't define me. But the cross does define me. People saved by Christ and his cross should be shaped by Christ and his cross. That everything I now believe, the way I try to treat people, the very purpose in my life, all of this is built on and even fashioned by Jesus and his cross. Our message this morning will be about the death of Jesus, but not just about him dying, but how his death should affect us. We'll see that because Jesus was a sin-bearing Savior, we should be a cross-shaped people. Well, before we're camping out there, I just want to give a quick summary and overview of the passage. So I'm going to walk from 45 to 57 and just give context to what's going on. So if you look with me in John 11, verse 45, it tells us that after Jesus had raised Lazarus, that many believe in Jesus, which makes sense because he just raised the dead. But it tells us that others go to these religious leaders and they report what Jesus did and how many responded in faith. And then in verses 47, which I have here, you see the response of these leaders. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Where the ESV translate the phrase there, What are we to do? It would be better translated as, what are we accomplishing? Or what in the world are we doing? They're saying here, all the things we've been trying are failing. And Jesus just keeps getting more and more followers. That even our efforts to intimidate people, keep people silent, and push Jesus to the side, it isn't working. They admit here that everything they've done has failed in their attempts to undermine or trap this Jesus Well, then the person adds, and you see this in verse 48, if they let Jesus continue to do these signs, everyone will follow him. In verse 48, we see their reasoning behind this, though. They reason that if all the people follow Jesus, and if Jesus is directly opposing the current leaders, then there's likely to be enough of an uprise that Rome will come in and they'll squash what's going on. But it seems here that their bigger concern in that scenario, it's actually them losing their power and their prestige. They don't want to lose their place among the people and the authority tied to the temple. Well, in response to that, you then see the high priest, Caiaphas. He steps up now and he speaks. And you kind of get a glimpse of this group, what they're like, and even this person by how he talks to these people. He says right away in verse 50, he says, you don't know anything. Again, not the nicest words to your coworker. There's a lesson right there. Take that one. It's free. Not how you should talk to religious leaders. Please don't say that to me. I'll be offended. But then he goes on, and we notice that he says more than even he knows. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. His argument here is that Jesus' death is best for everyone, that it will save the nation from Rome, which will, of course, work out better for you, he says. Now, I'll come back to 51 and 52 later, but notice in verses 53 and then in 57 what happens. 
tells us in verse 53 that they now make a plan to put Jesus to death. And then in 57, it tells us that the people are told that if you see Jesus, you need to report him to us so that we can arrest him. Maybe it's because I've watched too many Westerns in my day, but what comes to mind is them nailing up one of those wanted posters with Jesus as the outlaw and 30 pieces of silver as the reward. But what we see here is this is actually a key turning point in John's gospel. We've seen throughout the gospel that the Jews are trying to condemn Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And at some moments, they even want to stone him. But there's a turning point right here, right now. Let me remind you that this group of religious leaders, they're not just religious people, but the Sanhedrin, the group they're a part of, they're actually the highest judicial body that they're under Roman authority, but they actually work with the Roman authority. And they deal with religious matters, but also judicial or legislative matters. So anything going on in Israel, they're the governing body. And so the shift happening here is that the desire to kill Jesus, it moves from just a handful of people to the official governing body. It's no longer the idea of, well, if we, catch, if we can catch him, let's do it. But we now see a purposeful, committed plan to put Jesus to death. D.A. Carson writes, The decision has now been made. It remains only to carry it out as efficiently as is compatible with political expediency. In short, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. He is to be tried because he has already been found guilty. In other words, they are not now searching for the truth, but they're out to save their own skin. Well, before we kind of move on to the cross, I just want to even pause right here and consider one application. As we look at the Jews and kind of their slide into blindness and direct disobedience to God's law, the God they claim to follow, this should actually warn us this morning. We should see that sin blinds us, that sin deceives us. That sin actually blinds us to our blindness, and it deceives us about our deception. And what happens is the more we walk in our sin, the more we get into disobedience, the further we get from God, the more lost we are, the harder it is to see light, and the more calloused our hearts become. Now again, this should sound an alarm to us. Just like how thunderstorm warnings or tornado watches, they cause you to pause and pay attention to what's going on. This passage is putting us on alert about the deceitfulness and the danger and the oncoming destruction from sin. So the point here we should learn is to not let sin linger. Don't keep sin around. Don't try to manage your sin. Little sins, what start as little sins, they quickly become big sins. You know, in our life, sin never gets smaller, it never shrinks, and it never goes away on its own. Sin only grows and gets bigger and bigger and bigger unless we root it out and deal with it. And so the point and the warning for us even here is if we don't want to become like that, if we don't want to become blind and opposed to God's will, we should root out sin while it's small. We should listen to God's word and heed his conviction while we still hear it. We should not let idols stick around. And we should also, because we are blind to our sin, one way we fight is to allow godly people to be around us and to speak truth into our life. They often see where we are blind. 
Well, I want to now go back to the words of the high priest. I want to go to verses 50 to 53. At the heart of these verses is the death of Jesus, but also the meaning behind it. So let me read this, starting in verse 49. And he says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then this is John's interpretation. He adds, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, he, they made plans to put him to death. So John is telling us here that this high priest, he doesn't know the fullness of what he's actually saying. That as the high priest, his words are prophetic. They will be fulfilled, but not in the way they expect. Again, we often see this irony in John's gospel. Jesus will die for the people, and he will save many through his death, but not in the way the Sanhedrin thinks. You see, they think he's just a scapegoat, but the truth, he is God's lamb. Well, in the remainder of our time, I want us to just consider three aspects or three ways Christ's death should affect us. You know, the cross of Jesus, it does many things. It does more than this. But I think implicit in our text and explicit throughout John are these three things. That Jesus' sacrificial death reveals his love. That Jesus' substitutional death, it purchases forgiveness. And that Jesus' peacemaking death reconciles foes and to friends. Well, we'll start by looking at the sacrificial love of Jesus. Well, the language of sacrifice, it usually refers to a kind or loving act done for someone else. It can imply giving up something for me to bless another person, or it can imply giving up something good now for something even better later. You know, in my two years as a parent, I've learned that parenting is essentially sacrificing. From day one, you have to sacrifice a lot of sleep. Tim, our worship pastor, he's experiencing that right now. And with little ones, you have lots of interrupted nights. But the reason we do that, the reason we can make that sacrifice is because we love our children. So the sacrifice doesn't always even feel like sacrifice. And there are many other sacrifices when it comes to parenting. You not only lose sleep, but you lose personal time. You lose drinking your coffee while it's hot. Miss that. You lose a little bit of brain power. I still have a foggy mind that can't call to mind words like before Lily came. You lose some money. Lots of money there for kids. Privacy. The chance to go to the bathroom alone. You lose the ability to take long car rides or have quiet in the car. You lose the chance to have a clean house, clothes without stains, getting to shower daily. I did shower today, just so you know. Or you lose the chance to have a car that doesn't have goldfish in every nook and cranny. And those are just a few of the sacrifices you make as a parent. Because parenting, like any relationship, requires sacrifice to self for the good of the relationship. But we do those things. We make sacrifices usually out of love. And I do those things so that one day, when I'm old, Lily will take care of me. There's always a little bit of works mixed in with the grace. I'm just saying. Well, in the Bible, sacrifices, these are actually offerings made to God. 
Usually it's an animal, sometimes it's food. It's often done in in the context of sacrifice specifically for sin. That the animal's life was offered up to God on behalf of the individual so that they could be ceremonially clean. Well, then the New Testament, it picks up this language of sacrifice and it applies it to the death of Jesus. That the death of Jesus is a sacrifice to God and for us. That he takes on himself our sin and he pays the penalty of sin, but he also absorbs God's just and righteous wrath. And what we see in this sacrifice is the very nature of Christ's death. It reveals his love and his grace and his kindness to us. That Jesus gives up his own life for us. That Jesus endures the worst of death and judgment so that we don't have to. That Jesus lovingly, again graciously and willingly, lays down his life for us. That his life is not taken against his will. Jesus is not cornered or forced to give up his life. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. But the Bible tells us that Jesus willingly gives up his life and that he's moved to do so because of his love for you and I. Now our text today, it draws a lot from John 10. So I'm going to go to John 10, 11 to 15 just to see this in another place. Notice how he talks about Jesus' death in these terms of how it reveals his love to us. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I think when Jesus is talking here, he's not just trying to present a theoretical lesson This isn't just a good metaphor to try to understand the work of Jesus. I think he knows in his mind where he's soon going, what he's going to do, but also why he's doing it. Jesus here, he's not talking about cute little foxes that snatch up chickens when no one is looking, but Jesus refers to wolves. And wolves are deadly, dangerous, and scary animals. You know, just watch a documentary on Yellowstone or about animals, and you see how scary and dangerous wolves can be. You know, it says here that wolves kill sheep, but Jesus tells us that wolves also kill shepherds. And that's why Jesus says when these hired hands, and he's talking about the religious leaders, when they see a wolf coming, they actually take off and they run to save their own skin, even if the sheep die in the process. But notice Jesus says it's different for him. That Jesus, as the good shepherd, he doesn't run and he doesn't hide when the wolves come because he's the kind of shepherd that loves his sheep enough to stay put, to fight for them, and to even lay down his own life. Again, I think when Jesus says this, he has the cross in mind. He knows that he will soon die because of his sheep. And he could run. That Jesus could avoid death and pain. He could avoid the cross. He could avoid judgment and facing his enemies. 
And if he did not love his sheep so much, that is exactly what he would do. But he does love us. He loves you. And he stays put and he sacrifices himself by letting the wolves rip him to shreds for the sake of the sheep. You know, the fact that Jesus would sacrifice himself, that he would love us so much, not just as humans, but also as sinners, the very people who put him there, that shows us that God's amazing, gracious, kind love, it is off the charts. And if you want to grasp God's love for you, you don't think about generalities. You don't think about God's love as some vague notion, but you look to the cross of Jesus. There's no greater proof There's no greater example of how much God loves you than what Jesus endures willingly, graciously, and lovingly for our sake. Well, Jesus' sacrifice reveals his love, but in it he also makes a substitutionary payment. You know, the language of sacrifice and substitution, they're almost one and the same because what Jesus sacrifices is himself. That Jesus doesn't, he doesn't pay money to redeem us. He doesn't trade in material goods, but he actually gives his life, his body to save ours. And that's why we talk about the cross in terms of substitutional payment. You see, because every human has done wrong things. Because every single person in this room has sinned against God, we now stand condemned. We stand guilty before the holy, just, and righteous God. And because God is righteous, it tells us that he cannot and he will not just look the other way and let sin go unpunished. It tells us in Romans that the wages of that sin is death. That because we're sinners, we deserve death. And not just physical death, but an eternal death where we are judged and separated from God. And all of that is because our guilt and the condemnation brought on by our own sin. But what we learn is that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's dying for our sin, that's the payment, and he's dying in our place, and that's the substitution. That what should have become ours becomes his because he is the sacrificial substitute. That he not only took our sin, but he actually offers his righteousness and his acceptance before the Father. Again, let me show you a couple other places we see this in John. One is John 1.29. It says, The next day he, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in John 3, the most famous passage in the Bible, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when we believe on Jesus, we receive full pardon and forgiveness because Jesus fully paid our sin. That we are forever welcomed into the loving hands of our Father. That because Jesus took the death we deserve, we get the eternal life he earned And purchased for us. You know, when I talked about sacrifice, I was highlighting just the love of Jesus. But when we talk about substitution, we're talking about what Jesus actually accomplishes. And both are beautiful and glorious. 
if we only had a loving Jesus, but he could not save, then he, is, he cannot help us where we need it the most. But if Jesus can save us, but he does it out of duty and not out of love, you know, we would take the benefits, but we would not love him and worship him in return. But the death of Jesus, Jesus' death, it's powerful to save, so it does what we need. And he does it out of love and grace, so he answers the deepest longings of our heart. And that's why the cross is the most shaping force in our life. It's not only what we need, it's what we long for, and now it causes worship in our life. So we've looked at the sacrificial love of Jesus, the substitutionary payment of Jesus, and now we'll consider the peacemaking act of Jesus. And I think one accomplishment of Christ's death we consider less is how it actually unites believers together as one. That it is a reconciling, peacemaking act that creates a real, objective unity for the whole church. Christ's death should not only affect how we view and relate to God, but Christ's death should affect how we view and relate to one another. And not just people in our church or people who look, think, and act like us, but Jesus died to unite a people across the globe who look different, who think different, who talk different, and who act different. The truth is we live in a very divided and hostile society that people choose their camp, they kind of dig in, and they want to shoot anyone who's not on their side. And sadly, this happens way too often in the church and not just the world. But the gospel tells us that this should not be so. That the death of Jesus, it's not only to forgive us individually, but it's to heal our fractures and unite us together as a people. Now, this doesn't mean we deny disagreements. It doesn't mean we downplay all differences. And it doesn't mean we seek unity at the cost of diversity. But it means amidst all these differences, some deeper than others, that we have more in common through Christ to bring us together than we have differences to pull us apart. I want to show you a few places in John where we see the same theme. One is our passage, John eleven fifty one and 52. As I read this, listen again to the emphasis on oneness. It said that the priest did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Or again, in John chapter 10, where we talked about Jesus being the great shepherd, he says something like that again. Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. What we see is that Jesus isn't the savior of one group of people, but Jesus is the savior of all people. That every nationality and tribe and tongue and ethnic group, they all find salvation in Jesus alone. That every skin color and gender, every nation, every tax bracket you can fall into, that Jesus is the Savior for all of them. And he says this not only means that all people have one shepherd. He could have just said, Jesus will die for the Jews, he'll die for the Gentiles. But he says he dies to actually bring them together as one. That Jesus overcomes our differences and our disagreements. That Jesus tears down walls. 
that Jesus is the peace between all parties, that Jesus reconciles strangers into siblings, and that Jesus makes friends out of foes. We see the same idea in John 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So this is right before the cross. Before he's about to die, this is what Jesus prays to the Father for. And notice how many times we see this language of oneness. Jesus prays for us that they may be one, even as we are one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. And what Jesus, he prays for here as a priest, he actually accomplishes through his sacrifice that he prays for us to be united as one, and then he dies to make it so. And so my question is, do you think about the death of Jesus only in terms of his sacrifice or how you receive payment for sin? Or do you also think of the death of Jesus as a peacemaking act that unites you with other people? Does the cross shape you so much that you pursue peace when annoyed or offended or even hurt? Is the cross strong enough to unite us in our differences? Well, hopefully this morning we've better understood the death of Jesus. We've seen some implications for it in our life. But I want to spend the last few moments just applying each of those a little more. I limited myself to one application for each of those three points. And again, the reminder here is that the cross of Jesus, when we talk about the cross, it's not just a symbol. It's not even just a doctrine we mentally affirm, but the cross must shape our lives. That because Jesus was a sin-bearing substitute, we should be that cross-shaped people. This morning, the three applications will be that we should resist division by pursuing peace, that we should rest in Christ's substitution by rehearsing the gospel, and that we should reflect Christ's sacrifice by living sacrificially. So let's go through those. The first, and we'll go through them in reverse order. The first is what we just talked about, that we should resist division by pursuing peace. And not only does Jesus pray for peace and die for peace, but if you read Philippians 2, Paul talks a lot about resisting division by humbly pursuing peace whenever Christians seem divided. In that chapter, he reminds them that they should pursue oneness, not to create some false sense of unity, but because we have actually been united as one. That their acts of pursuing peace are merely living out in accordance with what Jesus has already purchased. Now again, that applies to race, our differences as male and female, blue-collar and white-collar workers, rich and poor, left-brained or right-brained people, or even patriots and Colts fans. Yes. Well, these aren't meant to be areas that cause division and rob us of peace, but these are areas where there's diversity within unity, that the cross makes us one, that in all of those areas, the cross should have the first and the final word. This applies as well to how we view one another when we disagree about ethical issues that are in gray matters or where our different political leanings might be 
our various personalities that sometimes have a hard time coming together, or even when we see something on social media that we would never post and we might not support. That in all of those moments and on those issues, I'm not saying there should never be disagreement, though I hope we would lean into mutual understanding. What I'm saying is that disagreement in these areas should not lead to a fundamental division that undercuts the unity we have in Jesus. That we should be careful about not needlessly offending brothers and sisters in Christ. That we should be careful not to create division when we're to lean into and pursue unity and peace. But also at the same time that when we do get offended or when we notice a difference between what someone else thinks and what we might think, that we guard ourselves against distancing ourselves from them because we see or think about the world so differently. If we are to be shaped by the cross, then we must resist division and pursue peace. The second thing we see is that we should also rest in Christ's substitution by embracing the gospel. You know, sometimes we just need refreshed by the good news of the gospel. That's part of why I was excited to preach about the cross today. You know, from Monday to Saturday and even on Sunday now, our life has little rest. That every week you and I sin, and even as believers, when we know we're forgiven, sometimes we allow um, these haunting and lingering thoughts of, am I really forgiven? Am I made clean? We carry shame, and we allow distance between God and us to come up. You know, when we allow that to be there, there's no rest in that. Not only that, but every week we're engaged, hopefully, in battles against our sin. And fighting sin leaves us weary. That all of us have deeply ingrained habits or personal struggles that we want out of our life. And those don't usually go away on their own, and they're not easy to get rid of. And so it means daily and weekly battling our own flesh. And that doesn't even factor in the daily and weekly struggles of normal life and the trials and the suffering. You know, every day I have to fight to not say overly sarcastic things, to not be controlling or condemning or criticizing in my words. Every day my patience is tested and I have to say no to myself. And I'm sure there are things like this in your own life. Maybe it's anxiety or worry, impure thoughts, sexual desires, greed. Maybe it's discontentment or selfishness, discouragement or depression. And if you're in the ring each week and you're trying to fight that sin, you know it leaves you worn out and empty sometimes. And so that's why part of why I love the cross is that this is the chance to set our mind on Jesus, to rehearse the good news of the gospel, and to find refreshment in the finished work of Jesus. That we can allow this truth, these things to wash over our weary souls. That we're reminded that this struggle against sin, it's not forever, and that one day it will be completely eradicated and removed. We're reminded that Jesus has wiped away all our guilt, wiped away all our sin, and we really are accepted and loved by the Father. We're told that in the world we have troubles, but in Jesus we have victory. We're told that in the world we will get weary, but in Jesus we find rest. That Jesus is our refuge He's our safety, and he's our place of renewal because in the gospel, we're reminded how much God loves us. We're assured of God's provision and protection. We're given hope for our future. We're freed from the past, and we're helped where we are today. 
We rest in Christ's substitution, and by rehearsing that gospel, we embrace it and we find renewal. Let me encourage you, that sense of refreshment, we get that a lot on Sundays when we sing the gospel, when we hear about it in the sermon, but that same sense of refreshment is available all week if we reflect on and we meditate on and we embrace the gospel of Christ. So we resist division. We also reflect Christ's sacrifice by living sacrificially. This is the third and final application point. It tells us that the call to follow Jesus is the call to take up your cross, to deny yourself, to follow Jesus, and to live sacrificially. And make no mistake about it, that is very different from the mantra of the world today. That we're told to live for yourself, to follow your heart, to not deny who you are, and to not deny yourself. And the enemy whispers in our ears as well, and sometimes through marketing, sometimes through social media, sometimes through bad beliefs, but he says, you've done enough sacrificing and putting other people first. Now it's time to live for you, to put you first. What we've done is we've shifted away from an occasional desire to, as they say in Parks and Recs, to treat yourself, and we've moved to a life centered on that. Now it is okay, it's okay on occasion to treat yourself, to do nice things for yourself, but if we live our entire life centered on our comfort, on convenience, and on what we want, then we are not being shaped by the cross. But when we do reflect on the cross, when we consider Jesus, the gospel makes us grateful, which makes us generous. That when we realize how much Jesus willingly and lovingly gave up for us, it's easier to give up my time for a coworker or a friend or a spouse or a child. That when we realize Jesus gave up everything for us, we're freed to give or to serve others. That when we consider that Jesus did the hard things by putting people before himself, even at the cost of his life, that makes it possible for us to do uncomfortable and even inconvenient things. Things like serving in ministries at the church that aren't always exciting. Making a meal for someone when you'd rather watch Netflix. Even as simple as doing the dishes for a roommate or spouse or serving people in your community when you'd rather do something fun. So again, ask yourself, how might God want you to sacrificially serve others? Maybe it's a specific person or maybe it's a whole group of people. How might God be calling you to sacrifice your money, your time, your skills, your own desires, your own plans, or even your energy for the good of someone else? When we are people shaped by the cross, whose gratitude for grace leads to generosity, we we reflect his sacrifice of love in our own sacrificial living. Now, the cross is not only then our example, but it's actually our motivation pushing us. Now, I'll never sacrifice with joy or for long if I'm just doing it with gritted teeth instead of gospel inspiration. So we reflect on Christ's sacrifice in order to live sacrificially. Church, we are to be a cross-shaped people. The gospel of Christ, it changes us in countless ways, but here are three ways. Today, this week, it should change us. That we should resist division by pursuing peace. We should rest in Christ's substitution by rehearsing the good news of the gospel. And we should reflect Christ's sacrifice by living sacrificially. 
Would you pray with me and maybe consider which one of those you especially can lean into today and this week? God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that he laid down his life and that he did it lovingly, that he did it to redeem us and to save us, that he did it to make us one people, that when the world looks on us and they see our unity, they are shocked, but they are compelled. So God, I pray this week that we would remember and rehearse the gospel, that it would stir us, that it would move us, and it would actually shape us. Lord, help us to know where we can resist division and how we might lean into pursuing peace. Help us to rest in Jesus' substitution by rehearsing the gospel. And help us to reflect Christ's sacrifice by living sacrificially in big ways and small. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.